I love to hunt. Uh, my, 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 my dad and I were pheasant hunting yesterday. Uh, I'm going to be leaving in November, uh, the week after uh, Thanksgiving, going to be going to Texas uh, on, a, uh, on, a, on a deer hunt. And, uh, and, and so I, love, I remember one time I killed a deer in, in Kansas, and um, the way it kind of works is you take the whole deer into this, uh, this processor, you take it into the back, uh, and, and you drop the deer off, they'll skin it, they'll quarter it, they'll butcher it, and they'll package it up, and you can take it home uh, and put it in your freezer. And, and I'll never forget, uh, going into the back is, this was like a regular like butcher shop uh, where these people had cattle as well. And so every once in a while, stock the store, they would come in and they would, they would, um, uh, they would would bring cattle in, and they would butcher the cows, and you think, man, that just sounds terrible. Um, when you cook hamburger, that's what that is, right? Like, you know, there's no hamburger fairy that just brings patties. You know, it, it started off as a mooing cow. I, I know I wrecked some of your worldview today. I'm so sorry. But I mean, the sound was un- unimaginable when they would bring these cows in. They would herd them in, and they had these prods, these electrified probes that they would stick in the, you know, on their rear end to kind of get them to like go where they wanted them to go. And, and it would be loud, and they'd put them into these loud corrals, and then you know the unimaginable would, would happen. And I'm sitting there, and I'm telling this guy what I want with my you know how I want my deer uh, to be butchered, and uh, and 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 like they're just over there skinning this cow right next to me. And I'm going, this is the strangest thing I've ever seen. Okay. Um, there was a scientist one time that came up with this idea that, that maybe we could work smarter and not harder when it comes to butchering uh, these cows. And so he created a system. And he would, it was a system of, of, of um, it was like a corral, but it was, the idea was to gently and uh, lovingly, uh, in almost kind of like a maternal uh, nature, uh, lead these cows to their inevitable end, and and so so they would they would get these cows together, and they would um, uh, they they would bring them in. And they would well, the goal was to try to keep them content and comfortable as they enter into the slaughterhouse. And so they want they want the, the last moments of these cows' lives to be as peaceful as possible. And so in this system, when they would do this, they 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 wouldn't um, uh, you know prod the cows off of the truck bed, but they would lead them in silence, maybe even with a little bit of classical music playing in the background. They go into they would lead these cows into uh, this. Um, they would call it a squeeze chute. And, and it, it, it simulated a mother cow's kind of nuzzle, nuzzling touch and redirection uh, on these cows. It reminded them of being with their mother. And there were no sh- uh, sharp or sudden turns. It was a, a, a row of, of corral that was very gentle. And it would lead them to, to, to where they were going. And eventually their feet would lift off the ground. And they would never even know that they were on a conveyor belt. And, they would, and, and these cows would ride up. Allie's like, where are you going with this? And they, the cows would ride this conveyor belt up until they would go into this chute with the music playing in the background, and then bam! A blunt object would level a striking blow right between the eyes. They would be hung up, they would be cordoned over, and where they would be immediately butchered. The cows never saw it coming. The cows wanted to go because it sounded fun. It sounded, it felt right. It felt normal. It felt natural. And before they knew it, they were looking their own mortality right between the eyes. Church, I want you to understand, our culture is being led 
to the slaughter, much like the cows in that butchery. We're being led down a road that leads us into apostasy, into a post-Christian culture, into, into walking away from the things that this nation was founded upon, these ideals, these principles that our country was founded upon that are biblical in nature. And, and we give up a little bit of ground and we give up a little bit of ground and we give up a little bit of ground. And before we know it, we have been tempted to walk into ideals that are completely antithetical to that which are contained in the 66 books in your lap. I say all that because it's important for us to understand as we've looked over the last several weeks at the people of Israel, we have, have, have seen how they have responded to temptation. And we're going to look at in, in who tempts. Does God tempt us or is it just Satan? How, how does that even work? How did the, the people of Israel, how did they, they, they navigate the temptation? And we, I think we've seen already that the temptation for the people of Israel was to, to, instead of walking by faith into the unknown and trusting God to supply all of their needs, at every single turn, when they were faced with, with the temptation to turn around and go back to Egypt, they wanted to do so. Now, what we're going to see today, right? We spent the last uh, several weeks looking at perspective. When the hard times come, what does, what does perspective mean for us? And our perspective on the unknown can, can do one of two things. It can either stiffen our spines to, to increase or grow our faith and our trust that God is our supplier, he is our provider, or it can cause us to cower and in the faith, maybe even succumb to the temptation to do something that God would tell us would be outside of the bounds of his word. So the big idea for today is as we look at Jesus, we're going to see the picture of Jesus being tempted today. And as we look at that picture, we're going to see that Jesus did what the Old Testament Israelites refused to do. He relied on his father to meet his needs. And because of that, he overcame. And so, church, when we walk away from this series today, well, I hope that this is a, a, a foundational moment, a time for us to take an inventory. Do we trust God? Do we believe that God will, will do all the things that he did for those in Scripture? Will he do them for us as we walk through this unknown or are we going to allow ourselves to be tempted into being lulled into the false security that this world offers? Let's read Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 today. And then we're going to, we're going to see how Jesus was tempted on the Mount of Temptation. He said, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. If you're comfortable uh, writing in your Bible, underline that, that, uh, that, that phrase, led up by the Spirit. It's going to become uh, important for our conversation here in just a minute. So he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I bet he was. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. There were three things that three ways that Jesus was tempted in the desert. And I want as we look at this temptation, I want you to use this as a comparison and even a contrast of how the Israelites handled not having water, whether it was a Mara or Oreb, or they didn't have food, uh, and and or they you know they they didn't have um, uh, adequate they felt was adequate shelter, or they didn't have access to God. Whatever it happens to be, whatever uh, particular calamity they faced, I want you to compare that to how Jesus handled being without and what that looked like for him. First, we see that Jesus was tempted today to be his own sustainer. He was. Verse 1 says that he was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. So the question is, does God, does God tempt us? No, God doesn't tempt us, right? James chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. All right, understand who the tempter is. He is the author of lies, the prince of this world. It is Satan. All right, Satan is the one that tempts. Can God stop it? Yes. So does that make God complicit in the temptation? No. So if God cannot be tempted and Jesus is fully God, can Jesus actually be tempted in the same way we are? Some people will read this passage and they would say, say, well, you know, he was God. Of course he, you know, of course he can't be tempted the way we were. He can't sin, right? We see that verse 3 we see that it, it shows us that Satan is the one that tempts us. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So Satan is the one who tempts us. But because God is sovereign over all, even Satan's temptations can be used for God's glory. Because church, when Satan tempts us, every time that we resist his temptations, we bring God the glory for it. Church, I want to encourage you with something today. That is that there is nothing in this world that Satan can do that catches God by surprise. There is nothing that Satan can do that doesn't pass through the hand of a sovereign God. There are times. Are there times that God is going to allow you to be tempted? Of course. How do we know that? Because we've already established in the scriptures that God is sovereign. That everything that happens on this world is, happens because God is sovereign. And there are sometimes, church, God allows us to be tempted so that we might resist, cling to him. That in those weak moments where we thought we could do it on our own, when we thought that we were good enough, that we realize that we're not. And we cry out to God to be our sustainer. And he gets the glory because of his provision. And his protection over us. Think about the book of Job. Job was an upright and blameless guy, right? He was a good guy. And Satan says, I think I can get this guy to turn. God says, give it your best shot. Anything Satan did, whether it was his house crumbling, losing all of his livestock, losing his family, 
God was the one that set the parameters for Job's temptation to renounce God, not Satan. Church, understand, we give Satan way too much power. We give Satan way too much credit. God is the one that establishes the parameters. It's incumbent upon us that when the hard times come, that we understand that we don't serve the one that tempts. We serve the one who allows us to be tempted, that it would drive us into his strong, powerful, wonderful, majestic arms. Satan cannot do anything that God doesn't allow. Church, Satan is subordinate to God. Let's don't forget that. Okay, back to the desert and to Jesus. So here's the question. Could Jesus have sinned if he desired? It's almost like, can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? Have lunch with that, with that question. All right, so for us to understand this, because, because remember, if, if you know, God is capable of doing anything, he is God. He is sovereign over all. If he's not sovereign over all, he's not sovereign at all. So is there the capability? Well, we, there's four, thing, four biblical truths that we need to understand. We're not going to have time to go through all the scripture references, but I'm going to give them to you and let you go back and look them on your own. Number one, we need to understand about Jesus is that Jesus is fully man. Okay? There, there is a theory called the kenosis theory. Uh, where it's the idea that God, that Jesus, when he put on flesh, right, that he emptied himself of, of the, the whole amount of his deity to put on 100% flesh. That's, that, that math doesn't work. All right, if Jesus emptied himself of his deity, then his blood would not have been sufficient to pay for the sins of all mankind. Jesus was fully man. Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 shows us that Jesus is fully man. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says that, that Jesus in every way was tempted just as we are tempted. He said we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. All right, so for Jesus to be able to be our high priest for him to be able to sympathize with, when you cry out to God, for him to be able, for God to be able to say, in the form of Jesus, to be able to say that, that yes, I understand what you're going through. Jesus had to be tempted as we were tempted. So we understand that Jesus is fully man, so that he is fully capable of, of feeling the same emotions that we feel, but he was also fully tempted. He's also fully God, okay? John chapter 10 and verse 30. Hebrews chapter 1, and, and we can flip over to the Hebrews chapter 1 passage and take a look. Hebrews chapter 1 shows us the divinity of Jesus, that he did not let go of his deity. He says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. We understand that, that Jesus was fully God. He was fully in line for not just the earthly throne, but also he is, he, he is also on the heavenly throne as well, the right hand of the throne of God. We also understand James chapter 1 and verse 13 shows us that, that Jesus cannot be tempted. He, 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 he said, God cannot be tempted. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So here's what we've got to understand. There are some things, church, on this side of heaven, we are not going to fully understand. 
right? Our finite minds cannot comprehend the depth and the breadth of God's love. So how do these four things mesh? How can Jesus be fully man, be fully tempted, be fully God, and God still cannot be tempted? I want to I give you kind of a... a um, kind of a primitive way of, of looking at this particular idea of how God deals with, in the form of Jesus, deals with temptation. Close your eyes. If you're online with us today, I want you to do it too. I know I can't see you, all right, but I can see everybody in here. Close your eyes. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to think of someone that you love dearly, and, and, and don't think of Jesus, okay? Uh, the church answer is great. I want you to think of somebody in your life, human on this earth, that you love who is living right now. You love that person, don't you? They're great. They encourage you. They love you. Let me ask you a question. Keep, keep picturing that person in your mind whom you love dearly. Could you ever murder that person? Of course you couldn't, right? All right, look at me. Your thought is, how could I do that? I love that person. I don't have the moral capability to murder that person. I, that wasn't the question I asked. I asked you if you were capable, physically capable, were you, are you capable of murdering that person? And the answer to that, while absolutely unfathomable, is probably yes. If push came to shove and you had to do it physically, could you? Yes. Now, I want you to think of Jesus. Jesus, because in his deity as the light of the world in whom there is no darkness, could not have sinned, right? You understand that he is morally incapable of such an action. It is the idea of Jesus sinning even a little, what we would consider to be a little sin, right? Running a red light. Jesus couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Was he physically, is he physically capable of running a red light if he were here in the 21st century? Sure. At the same time, where he is morally incapable of doing it, at the same time, Jesus could have physically sinned in the sense that he was physically capable of eating bread, or he was capable of throwing himself off a temple, or he was capable of bowing the knee to Satan. So in this way, because we know that he was fully tempted so that he has the capability to be our high priest, is he capable of doing it so that he could be our sympathizer? Yes, he was physically capable, but it is so outside of his nature, it would, he wouldn't even bow the knee or toe the line in places we probably would. Now, back to the temptations. Jesus was tempted to be his own sustainer, right? Have you, ever, have you ever wanted something so badly and you ask God for it? Oh, God, I want this. I just, I want this to be, I want this person to love me. I want to get this job. I want this and with that. And, and when God didn't immediately fulfill that need, did, y'all ever helped God? Yeah, you're laughing. That means you've done it. You, maybe it's like, I know this is God's will. There's a temptation, church, for us to fulfill our desires, call it God's will, and then justify our behaviors as righteousness. 
Friend, we all desire something. And we see that in verse 3 that Jesus is hungry. Over a month, 40 days and 40 nights spent in the desert. And so Satan comes up, he sees that hunger, and he feeds into Jesus' greatest physical weakness at the time. But look how Jesus responds with the scriptures. He reads us, he recites to us, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, said, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you now that that man does not live, or make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Church, there is just something special about learning the word of God and letting it permeate your heart. In the moment of Jesus' greatest weakness, when he was jostled, much like a few weeks ago we talked about the lady with the McDonald's cup, what, when we're jostled, what's inside of us comes out. And Jesus was jostled by Satan, and what came out were the words of his father. Are you hungry? Satan offers you Chinese buffets. Are you lonely? Satan offers you pornography. Are you bored? Satan offers you apathy. You're probably wondering what this is. Uh, it's my prop for the day. One of my best friends in the world bought me this. We were in Jerusalem on a, on a Holy Land trip. You probably can't see it. There's a, there should be a picture of it behind me. Um, this is a tile. We, uh, my buddy Jeff bought this tile in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a place called Jerusalem Pottery uh, uh, in, uh, in the Christian section of, uh, of the old city of Jerusalem. And he walks up and he says, I want to give you something. I'm like, okay. Like, I didn't know what he was doing. He hands me this. It was all wrapped up. And I unwrapped it and I go, what in the world is this? And he said, he said it made me think of you. I said, you tell me the sin in the garden made, me, made you think of me? Like, Thanks. I'll find better friends. And he said, no. He said, have you ever noticed that when you preach, more often than not, you reference the sin in the Garden of Eden? And I thought, I went back and started looking at some of my sermon notes, and I, I, I mentioned the garden in an inordinate amount of time, of times. Jeff told me something I'll never forget. He said, the one thing that I, that I take away from all of your sermons is everything begins in the garden. Church, it's important for us to understand about the Garden of Eden that God created a perfect place. He created a perfect people to oversee that perfect place. Gave Adam and Eve everything they could ever want. But then in the middle of that garden, he planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Why would God, and then why would God, being perfect, why would he look at them and why would he say, say you can eat of any tree, of anything in, in this garden that you want, but you cannot eat of, the, of this particular tree? Why would he plant that tree there and say you can't have it? Try, try telling a child, this stove is hot, you don't want to touch it. It's the first thing they do. Psst. So 
So Satan comes along. He uses that tree to convince Adam and Eve that there was something that God was holding out on them. That there was something that God wanted to have that they didn't have so that he could remain sovereign. And Satan comes along and he says, don't you, don't you think God wants you to know all the things? Don't you think that God wants you to be like him? That's why he created you in his image, that you might be like him. Go ahead, he won't mind, eat of the tree. And like the cows we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, Adam and Eve bought it. And they ate of the tree. And so Paul would tell the church at Rome, in Romans chapter, chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. The tree was planted, church, in the middle of the garden because it was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to worship. Every time they walked by that tree and they said, no, 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 I love God more than I love whatever that tree tastes like, they worshiped. Church, when, when you're tempted, when Satan tempts you with something, trying to convince you that it's okay, that God won't mind, Every time you say no to that temptation, you worship God. Dr. Neil Cordell, who, was, who is a mentor to me, once said that, that obedience is submission to the will of God on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. That's worship. When we willingly crucify our desires so that we might submit to the will of God, we resist the temptation to be our own sustainers. Leaning in to the one who has said he will supply all of our needs, not necessarily all of our wants, but all of our needs. And he gives us what we need and he withholds the things that we want so badly that would be harmful to, of, of us, all because he has our best in mind. Jesus was tempted to be his own sustainer, but he was also tempted to be his own protector. I get what you're thinking. That's probably not a big deal, right? Like, I have no desire. Like, as we look at the, the next section, uh, verse 5, verses 5 through 7, you know, I, I get it. Like, if you take me to the top of the Dames Point Bridge and say, how about a little jump? God will save you. I'm going to say, no thanks. I'm going to go find a Chinese buffet somewhere. <laughs> you got to see it with the first century context in mind, though. This wasn't an ordinary building that Satan took Jesus up to. Look at verse 5. It said, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. The very top of the temple. What was the temple? It was the place where God's presence resided. It was a symbol to all believers of God's provision, of his protection of the presence he had with his people. And so here comes Satan, and Satan knows scripture. He comes along and he quotes Psalm 91. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What does Satan do here? He reads the scriptures, but he distorts them. He twists them. And he tries, he uses his father's own words to try to convince Jesus to tempt God into proving that Jesus was his son. 
Church, understand what Satan does. He knows the scriptures, yet he distorts it. He tries to convince us that we don't need God, that we can go it alone and be just fine. And he nearly convinced Israel to turn their backs on God and to walk back into slavery. And so Satan tempts us to twist scripture to justify our poor life choices. One of the biggest lies that Satan says is God just wants you to be happy. It sounds so logical. And that's so true. But Peter would write to a persecuted church in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 1 through 5, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, Righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly church. God wants us to be happy, but he wants our happiness to be within the confines of his holiness. So look how Jesus responds in verse 7. He says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus told Satan that he didn't need to be his own protector. That living in the sanctity and the security of God's protection was all Jesus needed. And church, it's all we need too. But there would be a time, and I want to share this with you. I know we're, we're, our time is getting short, so please bear with me. There was a time that Jesus would forego his father's protection. In the, in the course of a Passover meal... Jewish family members will, will take this meal and there's a, a process to it. And there's, they will drink out of four cups of wine that are sitting on the table. There's a, there, there are five cups, but they will drink out of four of them. And so, and actually each of the four cups of wine uh, have a different have a different meaning. And it comes out of Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, when when God said to Moses, he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I, or that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give, give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. Four cups for four promises. He says, I will take you out. All right, that's the cup of sanctification. He says, I will deliver you from the hands of the Egyptians. That's the cup of deliverance. He said, I will redeem you. That's the cup of redemption. And he says, I will acquire you. I will protect you. It's the cup of protection. So picture Jesus in the Last Supper as Jesus passed the various cups around. There was a fourth cup, that cup of protection. And Jesus said, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of this vine. I'm not going to drink from this cup. 
And there was a reason for that. It was a fulfillment of prophecy that we read in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 15, verses 15 through 17. He said, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. There's a fifth cup on the table in the Passover feast. It's called the cup of Elijah. It's a cup that, it's a cup essentially of God's wrath. Malachi prophesied in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi prophesied that Elijah would return shortly before the coming of Messiah and the day of God's wrath against all wickedness. And so as part of the Passover ceremony, the door is opened and the head of the household says, pour out your wrath on the world. And in the traditional ceremony, the, the cup is not, or the cup is filled, but the cup is not drank from. It wouldn't be until the coming of Elijah. I want you to read with me in Matthew chapter 26. We see that Jesus drank of the cup of God's wrath. Said, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it would be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, Unless I drink it, your will be done. When we see Jesus speak of death as drinking a cup, we look back to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath destined for the nations. And he forewent the drinking of God's, the cup of God's protection so that he could drink the cup of God's wrath for you. As we reference all nations, we think about the promise that God made to Abraham that I'm going to make out of your seed a great nation. Because of the wrath bearing sacrifice of Jesus, God the Father has been fully satisfied. He has declared his people righteous and has brought his own people with the death of his own son. He's ransomed us. From everlasting punishment. He's removed our guilt as far as the east is from the west. And he's established a new covenant, a new testament with us. We're now, we're no longer enemies to God, but we are sons and daughters. And he's forgiven our sin based on the substitutionary atonement of his son, Jesus. And I think of the song that we sing around Easter time. That says, and on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. And it's here in the death of Christ I live. Jesus, in that one instance, denied his father's protection so you wouldn't have to. Finally today, and we're running late, Jesus was tempted to be his own conqueror. Verses 8 through 10, Satan takes Jesus up to the high place where he sees all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, if you will bow down to me, 
This, this can all be yours. Can you imagine Jesus hearing that? Jesus already knew from his father that these were his already. But imagine Jesus standing there saying, if I will only bow the knee to Satan, I can have this. I can take the easy road. I don't have to go through all of that, that agony in, the, in, in my father's wrath, my father turning his back on me. And all he had to do was deny his father. It was the easy road, church. We're tempted to take that road, aren't we? We're tempted to take the easy road, to chase after that promotion or that boat or that house, that relationship, the trappings of this life, to find that happiness or that purpose. Church, it's fool's gold. You know what fool's gold is, don't you? You go to Cherokee, North Carolina. A lot of people are there right now. You can go into these shops and you can buy this metal that looks just like gold. It feels like it. It looks like it, but on the inside, it's empty. What Satan offered Jesus was an empty promise. We don't conquer this world alone, friend, but it's too strong, it's too big, it's too powerful. And so Satan offers Jesus all these things. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. One last scripture I want to leave you with today, and we're going to be done. In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 34, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How, we, or how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? For it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Church Israel forgot who delivered them. And thus, when life got tough, they succumbed to the temptation to find peace and purpose from someone other than God. My encouragement to you today would be not to do that. Let's lean into the ministry of Jesus who showed us that there is nothing that we need that God doesn't provide. And if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, there is not a better day in this world to ask him to forgive you of your sin and turn to him only than today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, the service will be done. But there will be some people back in our next steps area, back in the back of the worship center. I would encourage you to go talk to, talk to someone back there. Come talk to me. And let us tell you about the greatest person who has ever lived, who was tempted in every way yet remained without sin. Father, we love you and we praise you. As we leave this place today, I pray that we would honor you with all that we have. God, that we would not succumb to the temptation, the trappings of this world, but we would lean into our Father who supplies all of our needs so that we don't have to chase that purpose anywhere else. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.